So I read for you in your hearing today, Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. Hear now the word of the Lord. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church. In entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For the unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, what a tremendously encouraging passage to know that even the enemies of your church will be conquered either for your service and for your love or in your judgment and your wrath. Father, may we be encouraged this day to one, take heart to the reality of your son's reign and may it be that we would depend upon the very things that these people in one accord paid attention to which was the word proclaimed that your son is the Christ. May we enjoy that reign with gladness and joy and with obedience and hope. Even now we ask that you would pour out your spirit for us to be this way before you through the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Even though today is not really the introduction for Saul, since we saw him in chapter 7 as they put their cloaks at his feet at the stoning of Stephen, there's obvious a transition occurring here for Luke as he is writing the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. You know that Luke already knows the bigger story about what is going to occur with Saul, but how he does this transition here with this very short sentence is a very potent and powerful sentence. In fact, it, I was tempted to just preach on this one small phrase in of itself. There's, there's so much power packed in to these words, and Saul approved of his execution. As we end with the sermon of Stephen and the stoning of Stephen, the death of Stephen, 
we are introduced even more thoroughly to this character, Saul. He knows and and we know that God is going to do tremendous things. R.C. Sproul in his commentary says that Saul is the greatest Christian who ever lived. That's a big proclamation to indicate when you consider what he had done for the church, what God had done through him in the church. It's a very hard thing to argue against and to have this moment where it's a very powerful and painful moment as we are given this story of Stephen being pelted with stones, being rejected by people who are proclaiming to be God's people, to see this man die before them, and as he is looking at Jesus in the midst of his death, It's a potently powerful and painful scene. And then to hear and to be reminded for at least on this side of glory forever that Saul approved of Stephen's execution. They're indicting words against Saul. Words that I'm sure that Saul dwelt upon with gratitude of thanksgiving for God's grace but also an an image that I'm sure he never got out of his mind, remembering that he stood approvingly at the death of Stephen in the very beginning of the church. Saul is now the primary character of carrying the baton of the proclamation of Jesus Christ. This particular chapter will not immediately go deep into that, but as we go into chapter 9 soon, It will go into his conversion, and then from there, that baton is carried on, and it is the representation of the furthering of the gospel throughout the world. Saul is from Tarsus. A little bit of a quiz for children and adults. Where is Tarsus? If you wanted to go to the birthplace of Saul, where would you go today? What country would you go to? My kids can't answer. We talked about this this morning. (laughs) Anybody know what country? Any guesses? Not Egypt. Not Syria. Close. (laughs) Also close. But you got the two pieces of bread. What do you have in between the two pieces of Greece and Syria? Turkey! (laughs) You have Turkey as the meat there. It is modern-day Turkey, which is north of Jerusalem significantly, but not as much now in our mind concerning travel, but it is in the north part. It is above, um, and that is where he was from. But he was still of the people of Israel. He um, was a Roman citizen, and his dad was a well-respected merchant. That area where he was from was an area where a lot of trade occurred and he was very much wealthy and also knowledgeable and well trained when he was 13 years old they sent him to Jerusalem seminary which I don't know what they would actually call it but it would be the equivalent of seminary I was just talking to Maroos this morning that he that he was working for a pharmacy when he was 12, 11 or 12 years old and I thought wow you know that's probably much more common 
in throughout history that people of that age started taking on their adult calling sooner on. But this is what happened with Paul. When he was 13, he was sent to seminary, and he studied under Gamaliel for seven years. And by the time he was 21 years old, he had what you would consider the equivalent of two PhDs. That's how educated he was. He was considered, at that particular time, the most educated Jew in Palestine. He is, as he's even claimed himself, was a Jew of all Jews. We, if we could even hear his own words now, in Philippians chapter 3, he explains that he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to a law, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under law, under the law, blameless. And we will come back to that particular passage about what he actually thinks about that self-description of himself, but he acknowledges. Where the Lord had directed him, even as he was opposed to the Lord, where the Lord had prepared him and established him, this was a very, very powerful man. God had set before us this one that would be, at that time in the early church, the chief persecutor of the church. And then here we are 2,000 years later, where one of our most recent deceased theologians says that he was the greatest Christian that ever lived. Those words alone should be encouraging to you as you consider in the presence of where we are in this narrative that God's power is over his greatest enemies. That he will take his greatest enemies and not just make them his friend, but to make them tools and vessels of his glory, of his justice, and his love, and the furthering of his kingdom, more than we could even ever imagine. But let us, before we go to that place, let us go deeper into the narrative so we could learn a bit more about just how powerful this is. It says, And there arose on the day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now, we see here that Saul is persecuting the church. Obviously, he's the chief persecutor. But before we can even go into too much depth here, we see another tremendously encouraging statement. Why is this encouraging? It says that they were scattered. They ran. They were fleeing throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Usually in the Old Testament, when people are being scattered, that is a time of judgment. If you would imagine that if our particular region was attacked and then people just took off running, we would see that to be a very grievous thing, a very sad thing, that people are, are running and fleeing like crazy. If, if something bad were to happen in here, if, you know, a moment ago the alarm was going off in the other, other section, and I started thinking, I hope there's not anybody walking through that portion of the building. I, it was kind of on an alert, and I start thinking that if something bad were to happen, we would probably scatter about. It is a terrifying scene. But we can, based upon what we understand in Scripture, now see this particular phrase before we go further, much further. 
that it's actually encouraging. Why is it encouraging? Well, let us go back to what Jesus said in the beginning of Acts. In Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. It says, when they came together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, much like he said in the passage this morning, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But they they were given something to know. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Well, we've seen that in the first few chapters of Acts. The Holy Spirit bursting forth upon the church. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, which is where they're witnessing right now, and in all of Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Verse 8 is the outline of the book of Acts. If you want a, a very simple, brief outline, it's a, it's a hard thing for you to argue against. This is Jesus' outline of the book of the Acts of the Apostles, is that, one, you will receive power by the Holy Spirit. Two, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Three, which is where we are now in the chapter 8, and in all of Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth, which is going to be the rest of the book of Acts and beyond. This is the outline. We are now going to that third section of this particular outline that Jesus provided for us before he ascended. These are the words he said to his people right before he took his place, sitting at the right hand of God the Father, and to assure for us with his intercession that these words would become true. This prophecy would become true. And by the very avenue of the chief persecutor, he would initiate his next phase in the furthering of the church by scattering his witnesses throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, just like he said. Now going back to a sad part again, verse 2, devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. It's interesting to see how the Lord was passing the baton of the furthering of the church. Here we had in the beginning, we had Peter when he's proclaiming before the people of God and before scribes and Pharisees and priests. And he's proclaiming the gospel And they're going in and out of jail as they're wrangling with that, as they would wrangle with Jesus. And then the baton gets passed over to Stephen for a moment in chapter 7 as the deacons, as the servants of the church, are actually taking the gospel further. It is an interesting and ironic thing that the next person to receive the baton in the furthering of the church would actually be the persecutor, the chief persecutor, the one that is the most educated of the ones that are the enemies of the proclamation of the gospel at the time. It's kind of like, oops, that was an accident. But he's actually passing the baton over to Saul. 
in a way that he doesn't even realize, and he will become the impetus of taking it to the next level by scattering them out. So as we look at the lamentations that they have over Stephen, mourning over those who are mourning, we can imagine that it was with great lamentation that they would see the one proclaiming the gospel as he was to be dead and to be burying him, to be suffering that particular loss. But those words had to ring in their ears when they said that they saw him, that they saw the Savior standing at the right hand of the Father. To be actually longing like, oh, I wish I could have seen that. Maybe they did. It doesn't say that they did. Or I long to see that. What a hopeful thing it is to remember Stephen's death that he is reminding all the hearers, even the enemies, as they gnash their teeth in anger that the Son of Man is standing at the right hand of the Father. He is reigning over them even as they kill one of his own. What an assurance. What mixed emotions that may be. Great lamentation, but also great joy to be reminded of that truth. And as they're running, much like many have been running in Afghanistan recently, having to make the decision whether to stay to proclaim the gospel to other Afghans or to preserve their families' lives, knowing that people are coming into their house after house, dragging off men and women today and committing them to prison, if not death. This is the nature of the church, of how the Lord proclaims his truth. It's a painful encouragement to see that in the suffering of God's people, his reign is being furthered and more certain. But all that is is an echo of the cross. It's a continued echo of the cross to see that the suffering of Jesus Christ, as we remind ourselves that we were there with Jesus, our sins were on the cross with Jesus, that in that moment of the greatest amount of suffering for the most innocent one ever to live, that that in that suffering is the greatest hope. That there is death of death. There is death of sin and that there can be reconciliation with God and man. This is the calling of the church. These are unique and heightened states. I mean, these are, as I said, R.C. says he's the greatest Christian. He's, He's definitely been one that's been given a tremendous responsibility, as we will see throughout the rest of the New Testament. But they are representations of what are occurring, not because of Saul's greatness, but because of the king's greatness to transfer someone who is in great darkness and confusion in one moment. And then by the power of God to be used as a powerful servant of grace and good. This is a fulfillment of what Jesus said would happen. It is a furthering of what would happen. And it should be a tremendous encouragement to us. Would we also be those who might long to have that type of use to our Savior? You ever think about that? I hear people, especially young people, wonder, you know, am I really being useful right now in my place and where I'm at? 
But you adults and the church as a whole, do we think about how useful we are for the kingdom? Are we being used as a testimony? We typically shape in our minds what we would like that testimony to look like in the region. I think about it a lot, especially when I look at other churches. I went to a particular workshop this past week and they had this really cool building that used to be an old warehouse in downtown Johnson City and it's, it's now like a three-story church building and they have these nice exposed beams and nice windows and it's a real nice cozy place and it's like, oh man, wouldn't it be nice to have something like that maybe in downtown Bristol and you know, we could have our sign on the, on, the, on the wall too and everybody in downtown could see us and that would be really cool to, to be able to have a testimony in downtown Bristol like that. And I'm not opposed to that, and I'm not criticizing them for that, but as I start shaping my thoughts, like, oh, that would be really nice. But then I forget about the testimony at the, of some of the greatest Christians that are living right now in Afghanistan and Iran as they're being scattered, as they have people coming in and out of their house, taking their parents away. We have to say, do we want to be truly useful to be a proclaiming testimony to the world like it was then and is still occurring now. We may have our chance one day. We may be able to. God instructs us to pray against it in some sense. He tells us to pray for the peace of our land. He tells us to go about our work with taking care of our families continuing to go on, trying to keep our nose in our own business, being obedient to our word and obedient to our covenants with one another. That's what our action is to be. We're not to provoke this or kick the hornet's nest ourselves in hoping that we could be one day in this kind of context. But would we take delight and joy in that kind of suffering? Would we even to be able to imagine ourselves in that circumstance, could we imagine that maybe we would, maybe even weakness, fold? The church is folding quickly now with very little push. And I think it's because of the very next portion of Scripture is absent for most of us in the church today. It says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. I went to a workshop this week. It was fresh instruction and encouragement for pastors to preach the word of God. The whole workshop was a very articulate explanation of how pastors need to make sure that when they preach their sermons, that they're actually preaching the Word of God as it was written. Doesn't that seem kind of crazy that you would need to have a workshop like that? And that... It's a concern amongst these particular brothers who gather that, that they are being tempted daily to turn away from that. And that they are there not only to be instructed in that, but to be encouraged because the battle is challenging 
to not preach just straight from the Word of God. That we actually have to take on a particular discipline to learn how to preach. And they said that the ones who are going to do the best job are going to be the people who understand grammar, who understand verbs, so they can understand what to preach to the people. It's like going, I was thinking I need to go back and get my whole handbook to make sure I'm reading the scriptures correctly because we are so unaccustomed at proclaiming the word in the pulpit that we have to be reminded how to sentence structure. Vodi Bauckham, one of the most popular and powerful preachers of our day, when he was instructing my last workshop, he says, I do sentence diagramming when I'm preparing my sermons. Because I've got to make sure I understand what's going on. I was instructed this week to write out the passage completely by hand and to notice how you will actually start writing something that's not there. But that is a common thing that will happen. That you already are assuming it's going to say something that it actually doesn't say when you're writing out the scriptures. That that is such a common thing for pastors today. That is why we are folding. Just a little bit of tyranny in the church scatters when we can still stand up. When we can still proclaim the gospel. We're not accustomed to paying attention to the word. We're not accustomed to preaching the word. That is where we need to be in the midst of these kind of things. If we're going to look at the hope that is inside of this particular passage for us today, we need to be in the word in that way. Let me continue. It says, when they heard him and saw signs that he did for unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many were paralyzed who were paralyzed or lame were healed so there was much joy in that city Jesus had already been to Samaria he'd already been there if you remember he spoke to the woman at the well from Samaria and they talked about the things that were to come If you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to turn to John chapter 4, starting with verse 26. When he's talking to the Samaritan woman in Samaria, he had to go through Samaria when he was leaving Galilee after he was being rejected there. And he was, he's either leaving or going to Galilee. I'm getting maybe backwards in my mind. Nonetheless, he went through Samaria and being thirsty, he went to a well, and he was in the land where they, they buried Joseph, where his bones were buried. And so the people there knew that this was land that belonged to God's people. And the Samaritans were kind of a mixed breed of, of religion. They, they were outside of the normal people of Israel, but they had connection in history with the people of God. And so there was mixed in a lot of worldliness in their thinking, but they still at the same time had a hope in the Lord much like we do today in modern Christianity, at least in America. And he was talking to the Samaritan woman, and he said, but the hour is coming, and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him 
Worship, see, I did it right there. Worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And then Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Jesus was telling the Samaritan woman, preparing the people of Samaria about what was about to come. Already giving them a taste of the glory of the Messiah. He was there and he was saying that in spirit and truth, people will worship him. Something is going to be distinctively different how people will come to God. They will come in spirit, by the power of the Holy Spirit, established in truth, as opposed to the mixed confusion that some of us are in and some of them were in at that time and that they will center it on the Christ and he says I am he and then later on in verse 39 it says many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony the woman said he told me everything that I did ever did there was a sign being performed much like Philip is doing now in the narrative Jesus was showing a sign, a miracle sign, that he actually knew this woman. It was intriguing to them. It was intriguing to her that as she was going on with the testimony, he told me all that I ever did as he spoke to her about the men in her life. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed... Verse 41, and many more believe because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. He was already prepping them. He already gave them the gospel in that moment, and Philip is now coming in, fulfilling the very promises that Jesus had for the people of God to go into Samaria. And they once again are being given the word. And they are coming to belief. And Philip is showing signs that Jesus promised would accompany his people, securing for them in their minds and their hearts that this is about the Christ. In John chapter 2, in verse 23, we see Jesus doing this in Jerusalem at the Passover feast. It says, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all the people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. This particular Savior, to draw people to himself, both in the time that he walked and both in the time that his people were being scattered, he accompanied the preaching and the proclamation of the word with specific signs and miracles to secure for them an understanding that the word is true. This is the nature of the Gospels. This is the nature of the Acts of the Apostles to reinforce for them that this is legit, that these are real things that are going on, that the power of what is being proclaimed actually is real, that it's not just 
a particular discourse by itself, that it's not just an ideology or a philosophy of thought, but that there is actual power behind the words. Listen to what Jesus said during the Great Commission, turning over to Mark chapter 16, as he was preparing his people for the very things that they're doing here in the book of Acts. It says in verse 14 of chapter 16, it says, Afterward he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table, at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. I love saying that. (laughs) I love saying that Jesus sat down at the right hand of God. I am so grateful for these continual reminders. I would pray that you would be encouraged by knowing that Jesus is at the right hand of God the Father at this very moment. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Modern day Christians have a really hard time when we read the scriptures. We, one of the problems we have is that we we overly personalize it for ourselves too quickly. We're, we're very used to um, social media type instruction. We'll get this little power verse or inspiration verse and we'll take it and we just look at it within the context of our own life. Now, I'll say right up front, I'm not saying that there's not any context for us in this particular passage. But we need to remember what is going on and we need to remember the book of Acts when we are reading back in the gospel where Jesus is saying this. When he gave them the particular commission before he ascended to the right hand, he was talking to them very clearly. Now, we are attached to that by default, by being a part of the church, but it was a very specific instruction that was going to occur. He's accompanying those particular statements by saying, go to Judea, go to Samaria, and then they go to Judea and Samaria by being chased by Paul. That this is a very contextual story when he says that these things are going to happen. So when he tells them that they're going to be casting out demons and handling serpents and speaking in tongues, it's very much contextual for these specific people. Now the power in the proclamation of making disciples and the call and the instruction for us to carry this on throughout the world continually, is still here. But it says here, we need to remember what it says in verse 20. It says, And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. There's something unique going on here. There are some people who come back, specific people who come back after this instruction with a particular report to Jesus 
about how things are going along. This is why I know that it's a very specific passage. But before we go into that passage, I have another quiz question for you. How many stories in the Old Testament contain the miracle of a demon being taken out of someone that you can recall? Didn't even let him think about it for a minute. Especially Paul's. <laughs> Sarah is right. There are no accounts in the Old Testament of any demonic exorcisms. Nowhere. We go to the gospel, and it's exploding all over the place. Demons are being taken out. Why is that? Why is there all of a sudden, is it just some kind of theatric thing that is going on? Well, turn to Luke chapter 10, verse 17. It says, 72 returned with joy. Now, these are people who have been given this instruction to go out and to do this particular thing. It says, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. I mentioned this statement that Jesus made in the last sermon that he saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. This is an indication that in the incarnation of Jesus, again, Satan fell from power. The reason why you don't see demons being exercised in the Old Testament is because God had allowed for that purposes for Satan to have a certain kind of power over mankind. But with the oncoming of Jesus and his incarnation, even before he makes it to the cross, Satan has fallen from that place of authority. Now, you say, well, was this a real falling? How does this all work out? That's a whole other discussion. The point is, Satan has been thrown down from any power that he has over mankind. That Jesus' authority is real. He's saying, now I am giving you authority to go and do these things to accompany it with your message so that you can assure people that this is legit. This is going on. Satan has lost. That the power of what we're about to celebrate, December 25th, destroyed the power of Satan. Brothers and sisters, I wish I was in a Baptist church right now because there would have been a lot of amens. <laughs> I hope that your heart is saying amen to that. That there is no hope. That, that the flittering and fluttering of sin that is still in your life is a, a whimpering of going away by the washing of the blood of Jesus Christ. That is so hopeful. As you think about your struggles, your 
snippy little remarks or your selfish desires or your really bad thoughts and actions, the bitterness that you may still maintain, Satan no longer has captivity over you in that. Jesus Christ is reigning over you in that. He is at the right hand of the Father. You can repent. You can go to Jesus. You can take refuge, and it would be real, true reality, refuge in Jesus. And he is working that out in you now because of what occurred here. And so what is going on with Philip here in this particular passage is a continuance, a a more potent continuance even, because they're taking it to the next level. We need to not look at these things outside of the context of the reality because we will take it outside of the context of what Jesus has accomplished in his birth, death, resurrection, and reign. We'll look at it as this little thing that we have. And we're like, oh, I wonder if I can handle snakes or if I wonder if I can do these things. We are missing out on the message that Jesus says, you know what? Don't focus so much on that. Focus on the fact that and rejoice in the fact that your names, that your names are written in heaven. If you look at the context of that particular passage of Luke, he's admonishing God's people for not repenting. He says it's going to be better for Sodom because you don't realize the reality of the blessing that you have and it still echoes for us today. If you think that the power of God echoes for us, may the admonishment still echo for you. Don't get caught up in other things. Be so thankful that you have the grace of God. Go to him with the humility of repentance and faith. That's what Jesus says is even better than you being given any kind of temporal authority to cast out demons. That you should be rejoicing in the fact that your names are written in the book of heaven. Verse 21 of that same chapter in Luke 10, it says, In that same hour he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, and you have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. It says, all things have been handed over to me by the Father. This is what Jesus is saying before he went to the cross. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, He said, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. Brothers and sisters, blessed are you who can see this. Blessed are you who can hear this. Do you realize what cherished truth this is? This is why those before Philip are paying attention to his words. It's because they've been given this blessing. He says, for I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see. And did not see it. And to hear what you hear and did not hear it. You know what's after that particular discourse there with Jesus? He goes into the parable of the Good Samaritan. He talks about how he has this authority over all things and how he 
is giving his people this moment, this power to be able to even release demons that are inside of people. But he takes it up a notch by the next thing that he talks about is how this powerful message transforms even the people who are considered to be the enemies of God. The people who are considered to be outside of the camp. That's so much that he uses a Samaritan as the example of a teaching parable for Jews on what it is to show grace and mercy and love. That is what Jesus is highlighting that even greater than that. He's saying, don't get so caught up in these things. One, you need to be thankful that your name is even written in the heavens. And then two, look at the power of what's actually the power I'm talking about. The power I'm talking about is that the Samaritan people are now going to be my prop before you to teach you what grace and mercy looks like. It transforms our hearts. It's victory over the demons in our heart. It's victory over the sins in our heart. He is prophetically presenting before them what is now occurring in Samaria to a fuller degree by the people of God bringing the gospel to Judea and Samaria. And they're listening and they're paying attention. And the unclean spirits are being taken out. The unclean spirits are crying with a loud voice. They have lost. They are the ones lamenting. They are the ones who are lamenting that Jesus is now victorious. And the response of his people is that they have great joy. Paul was not boasting when he gave us that description of himself in Philippians. In Philippians chapter 3, after he describes all the things that he could boast in, well, let me actually back up to verse 2. He starts out with saying, look out for the dogs. He's, he knows these dogs because he's been there. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And he's talking about circumcision. Who gets caught up in all these things that are separate from the message of this truth. He says in verse 3, he says, for we are the circumcision. The church. We are Abraham's seed is what he's saying. He says, who worship by the Spirit of God in the glory of Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And then he says, though I myself have reason to have confidence in the flesh also. And then he gives us description of himself. But then in verse 7, skipping down, he says, but whatever gain I have, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, 
that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. We have been given this particular passage in the book of Philippians in a letter that Paul, who uses his name Paul because he's writing to Greek people and Paul is the Greek version of his name. This is the one who was persecuting. We can take tremendous great joy that Jesus will take his enemies and make them into his servants, but we can also take tremendous joy that Satan has been crushed. Now, I don't know in the, why in the mind of the Lord that he has chosen, you see in Daniel and in Revelation, that he has chosen for a season to continue to allow demons to bring conflict with God's people for a season. But it's limited. We're in the already, but not yet. But we know in this particular passage, we are given tremendous great hope that sin and death is now destroyed in its potency and power. All things have been given for the sake of Christ. Do you hear this? Do you know this? Do you know Christ? Are you encouraged by this? Have you been catechized by the world in such a way that you no longer are reminded of the reality of His reign over all things? He is Lord of all things. This table is set before us as that reminder because He knows that we grow hungry and weak and we need to be reminded daily every second of the day. But particularly He has given us this particular opportunity to come before Him to feast at His table to remember the victory that He has over Satan and death by His body and by His blood. And we celebrate with humility in solemnity but with great joy that Satan is no longer victorious over us. And you need to take this just as you will take in your body a fragment of bread in the cup. Take that truth with you this day. If you are not one who is allowed to even come to the table because you have not been baptized and you have not been one who to embrace this reality of truth, I encourage you to repent and to believe. To follow after Jesus Christ according to His command. The King has commanded that His disciples to be baptized. The King has commanded for us to do this in remembrance of Him. The King has commanded these things because He has commanded Satan, you are no longer in authority. And we have every reason to look at our suffering as an opportunity to take glory in his glory. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you.